you will remember that we have been studying the Beatitudes. And in our study of the Beatitudes, we have studied about those attitudes really that ought to be. Our Lord Jesus continues in his Sermon on the Mount to speak about righteousness. And in it, he will discuss the matter of murder, and he will compare it to hatred, which will exist in our hearts. He will talk about adultery, and he will speak about lust, and how we are to avoid that. He is teaching us to live up higher, and to rise up higher with our standards. And then in the sixth chapter, he will begin to teach us about giving, and that that giving is not to be done for the display of men, but that it has a great deal to do with our spiritual life. He will talk about alms, he will talk about prayer, he will talk about fasting, and in all of it, he will still seek to lift us up higher. So let me read first from the New International Version of Scripture, the words from Matthew chapter 6, verses uh, 1 through 4. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, shall reward you openly. And then from the Gospel according to Luke, a perfect example of such giving to the Lord. Chapter 21, verse 1 following. And as he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said. This poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. May God bless to our understanding this important passage from his word. And now let us worship God with our gifts. And now let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we open the book to look at your words and to see from the life of Jesus some things that we will one day have to give an accounting for, we pray that you will speak to us. Grant that the Holy Spirit himself is going to be present speaking through your word, applying to our own minds and lives just the lesson that we need, helping us to understand the truth, to see the reasonableness of it, and to be willing to obey to your glory. Bless each of us, we pray, 
Bless these gifts which we have this day dedicated to thee and use them to your glory. With these gifts, may we indeed give ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. I found a little poem that says, The codfish lays a million eggs, the lowly hen but one. The codfish never makes a sound to tell us what she's done. So we shun the lowly codfish, while the lowly hen we prize, which only goes to prove the point. It pays to advertise. There is one place that it does not pay to advertise, and that's what Jesus is talking about today in our lesson. It's in the matter of giving, and in the matter of praying, and in the matter of fasting. You will remember that when we started through the Beatitudes, we saw that those who are poor in spirit, who recognize their need of him, have the kingdom of heaven already invading their hearts that those who mourn over their sins and over the sins of the world and the injustices that exist are to be comforted, to have strength brought to them by God because they have identified with him. That those who are meek are happy because they have a disciplined spirit, one which is guided and controlled by him, that they will inherit the earth. That those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, as a man perishing of thirst desires water, or a person starving for food desires bread. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we have the joy of knowing that we have met one of the qualifications for being satisfied and being filled. Last Sunday, we saw the beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. My, what a tremendous beatitude that is. I remember talking to one of our boys last week about some little girl uh, who had got in a fight with her little brother. And uh, after they'd gotten into this terrible argument, just before they went to bed, the mother had come in and the little brother was too small to whip his larger sister as he wanted to do, and so he had to be restrained by his mother, and she had to take him kicking and screaming to put him into his bed. And uh, so she had to get through prayers with him, and then she said to him, uh, now I want you to forgive your sister, and he said, I won't forgive her. And she said, now listen, honey, uh, you know what the scriptures teach about this, and you must forgive your sister. He said, I won't do it. And she said, now, wait a minute. Suppose tonight your sister died in the night. Wouldn't you feel terrible in the morning? And he stopped and snuffled up a little bit. And he said, all right, I'll forgive her. But boy, if she wakes up in the morning, am I going to let her have it? <laughs> well, that's about the way we do in church when we hear these wonderful beatitudes spoken. We have a great feeling of mercy, which we're willing to show to others. But as soon as we get out of the church door, we leave all that back at the church, and we don't show that mercy like we should show it. But yet, uh, this is so important. 
that we need to keep it always in our mind. It really is very unreasonable of us to ask God to give something to us which we are not willing to give to other people. And if we are not willing to give forgiveness, then we short circuit, we blow a fuse spiritually, and we disqualify ourselves from receiving forgiveness. Now our Lord in warning uh, the next beatitude which we will take up next Sunday is blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And when I think about the pure in heart, I think about this sweet widow that our Lord Jesus observed. You see, he had such contrasting people to deal with as we always do in matters of religion. For here, when he speaks these gracious and golden words, and all of these people are listening to him, and he has taught them so plainly, he has to warn that when we do things to be seen of men, we lose our reward. One day there will be rewards that will be given out by God, and he wants us to understand that. But when we give, we are not to give in such a way that we attract attention to ourselves. When we pray, we're not to pray in such a way that we attract our attention unto ourselves. I heard a thoughtful professor of the Bible say that God's name is probably taken more in vain in prayer than in any other way. And there's a lot of truth to what that man said. And Jesus said, when we fast. Now look at this. He didn't say, if you give. He said, when you give. He took for granted that we would give. He didn't say, if you pray. He took it as an understanding that we would pray. He didn't say, if you fast. He took it for granted that we would be fasting. When you give, when you pray, when you fast. The Pharisees had a way of fasting uh, so that uh, they would look like they had been dragged through a knothole backwards when you saw them on the street. Uh, their faces would be forlorn and their hair all disheveled and no one could miss the point that they had fasted and some person would touch someone else and say, oh, isn't he a wonderful, wonderful, godly man? Look how much he fasts. Or when they heard their eloquent prayers, they would say, oh, wouldn't you give anything if you could pray like that? I remember reading one time a, a newspaper write-up of some man who had uh, made a prayer at some public occasion in the city of Boston. And the reporter said uh, a Boston audience had never heard a more eloquent prayer. <laughs> well, you don't pray uh, for the benefit of the people there in that way. It's not eloquence which we're trying to impress upon people, it's God. We are talking to him. And so in giving, Jesus said, do not be as the hypocrites. The word hypocrite was a word that was uh, well known to those who would be listening to Jesus make these words, but which probably is not as well known to us. A hypocrite was a, an actor. Now, I'm not saying that all actors are hypocrites, but I'm saying that a, a, a hypocrite was one who put on a performance uh, so that he would receive the reward of applause. Uh, they didn't have people who were makeup artists who could take a, a person who was a young woman and with uh, pencils and paints and dyes make her look like a haggard old, old woman. 
uh, but instead you had a mask. And if you were playing the part of a senator, uh, then you put up a mask in front of you. And the mask was the mask of a senator, so the audience understood that this was a mask. Now the person behind that mask was called a hypocrite. He was playing the part, and other people could see the part that he was playing. His reward, of course, would be the applause of the audience. Now Jesus said when we give, we're not to give so that we receive the applause of the audience. When we pray, we're not to pray in such a way that, that the crowd is impressed with the eloquence. When we're preaching, we're not to even use that as a means of attracting attention to ourselves. When we're fasting, we're not to use those things in that manner. Because if we do, we've missed it. The deadly sin of hypocrisy is one thing which he wishes to deal with strongly. It's a horrible reproach upon the church of Christ when someone says, if that man is a minister of the gospel, or this person is an elder or deacon, and this is the way they act, then it is a great harm to the testimony of Christ. And so this really cuts us down to size when we come to look into this passage of Scripture that deals here, because he is looking, you see, at the motives. And uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, and in that last week in Jesus' life, and that's where that occasion from the 21st chapter of Luke or in the 12th chapter of Mark, where the poor widow with the two mites comes in. This was in the last week of Jesus' life. He, before that week is out, will be nailed on a cross. And he is sitting over against the treasury. He had just been in a terrible debate with the scribes and the Pharisees. He had uttered all kinds of warnings against them because of the dreadful things which they had done, stealing widows' money. And in the midst of that heated argument, Jesus goes and sits down and looks over at the place where the great receptacles, 13 of them, uh, for the tribes. Uh, now, I know you say Joseph had 12 sons. He did, but Joseph, <laughs> I mean Jacob had 12 sons, but Joseph, you remember, had two. And uh, so there's where you get the 13 chests that were there. And so the 13 chests are there, and the, the disciples were greatly impressed with the temple and all of its glory. And then they, they were looking at these people who came by and put large gifts into the temple treasury. And Jesus looked up and saw the rich, he says, putting their gifts into the temple treasury. And sometimes they had a phrase called sounding the trumpet, where a person would take a great handful of golden coins and fling them with much sound into one of these 13 uh, metal chests. They were made out of brass or copper, and you could hear the sound. This was calling a lot of attention to the fact that they had cast in many coins. But he saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I wonder how he saw her. He couldn't have seen the two little tiny mites that were less than a sixteenth of a cent in her hand. And yet she slipped through the crowd, a poor, poor widow, 
clutching these two mites, which represented all she had to live on, and looking and thinking about God, her heavenly Father, she cast her two little mites into this one of these coffers. And Jesus, Jesus took them that day and kissed them and said, this poor widow, with her two little tiny copper coins, has cast in more than all. If you dumped all of those 13 great chests upside down and poured out all of that money, those two mites stand out in the heart of God. This morning, the Sunday school class that Elizabeth Wilson teaches so wonderfully right next to my study sang the old drugged cross. And I could hear them through the wall singing. People love that old hymn. And they were singing it. And while they were singing it, I was thinking about this poor widow. And my eyes blinked with tears, literally. And I thought about another widow, my own mother, who in the depression of the 1930s, with seven children to raise and with a cash income of $48 a month, $12 a week, taught her children to tithe. John Crawford, in an excellent book on stewardship and in a very fine talk at our family night supper, said that those of us who are parents should teach our children their responsibility in giving. Malachi thundered away in the third chapter in the eighth verse, will a man rob God? People steal from each other, they steal from the government. But will a person rob God, will he steal from God? Malachi said, you've robbed from God when you haven't given the tenths of your increase to the Lord, to those people. And my old mother believed those verses to be literally true. And as hard up as we were in the depths of the Depression, she wanted to teach us when I shined shoes on the streets of the town into which we moved, when I sold newspapers, that when I made a dollar, a dime of it belonged to the Lord, and that I should bring it there to the church. And long before I ever became a Christian, I tithed because I thought everyone did. It was a great shock to me when I... <laughs> got to my first deacon's meeting and found that that wasn't quite the case. Um, but I just thought everyone did. I thought it was just done by everyone who was a member of any church. I never realized anything else because you don't miss what you never had. And uh, this was just something that was programmed into us as, as little children. And uh, so it started uh, that way. And I think about this widow here that Jesus looks at and about her two small copper coins, and about her gift that day, and what it reveals. She fulfilled all that he said in the Sermon on the Mount she gave secretly. You remember Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your alms may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. She gave willingly, they are to do good, to be rich in good deeds, liberal and generous, 
for that giving unwillingly must be given from wrong motives. Cheerfully, in that chapter 9, which followed the wonderful uh, talk that John Hillsman gave us from chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says each one must do as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a, a cheerful giver. And then in Romans 12, 8, oh, we are told that the generous soul is the one that is to be enriched by God. The proportion which the gift bears to the ability of the giver is what God is looking at. I remember a crazy old story they used to tell about a, um, a, a hen and a, a great huge pig that were looking at some church that was nearby and they were having some big sign up in front about a giving campaign and people should give to the budget of the church, the missionary cause. And the hen said, well, I think we ought to give. And the pig said, I think we ought to give too. What should we give? And the hen said, well, I've got a wonderful idea. Let's give some ham and eggs. <laughs> and the pig said, well, that's the dumbest idea I ever heard of. He said, uh, for you, that's a contribution. But for me, it's a sacrifice. <laughs> it's everything. Uh, and there is something that we can learn there. We need to learn to give uh, sacrificially to the Lord. And when we do give to his work in that way, what a wonderful thing that it makes for him. Um, all of you who have been in this church a long time know that one of my great and favorite preachers has always been Dr. Alexander White of Free St. George's in Edinburgh, who died back in the 1920s and was principal of New College. He used to, his, he came, by the way, he was born out of wedlock. His mother never married the man who was the father of Alexander White. She lived all of her life trying her best to take care of her little boy. And finally, when she had to take him into town and apprentice him to a shoemaker, because when the, the power looms came in and they could not make a living anymore weaving cloth, she had taught that little boy the catechism. She had taught him the Bible. And later he became moderator of the Church of Scotland. He became chaplain to the Queen. He became also the principal of New College in Edinburgh. And let me, he was also preacher at Free St. George's, where even on a rainy day there would be long lines of people waiting to come in and to hear Alexander uh, White preach. I want to read you what he says about this a widow with her two mites. He, he tells about a woman who comes to his church. And thus it was that without once lifting her eyes off the temple chest, he talks about the woman in the story, she cast her contribution into the offering and passed uh, into the temple for prayer, passed away in prayer, and then went down to her own house she had seen nobody and spoken to nobody, and nobody had seen her. And she does not know, except to this day, what the Lord did uh, with her gifts. And then he talks about a lady in his own, own church. And uh, he says this. There is in my own church 
an old lady who puts her older bonnet on once a year and is announced by my secretary to come into my study with her five shillings in her hand. Where she gets the five shillings, I cannot imagine. But this is what she does with them. I have another fellow communicant who calls on me annually with a pound, but the five shilling one touches me the most, for her little room looks to me when I visit it as if she had far more need, not of five shillings, but of five pounds every year, either from me or from the church's treasury. But she always has a clean chair and a cup of tea for me when I visit her. A shilling, she says to me, to give to the starving Armenians. A shilling for the Jewish schools in Constantinople. A shilling for the coal miners' funds. A shilling for the senior ladies. A shilling for the poor fund. And then he goes on to say, I would be a brute if I refused to take it. I would have yet to learn the first principle of the grace of God if I were tempted to say to her to take her five shillings and to go buy coal with it to heat the cold room in which she lives. For all the coals in all the earth will not warm her heart and mine, and shall I not say it, the heart of her master, as much as her love for these causes of his which warms his heart and hers and her minister's heart. And then he proceeds to tell of another worshiper who gives a hundred pounds once a month and of others that give too. But how that poor widow touches his heart the most. And the reason, of course, is that she has fulfilled these things of which Jesus uh, has spoken here. She has given uh, not out of her superfluity, not the tips to God, but she is given out of needs that existed in her heart. All of us are greatly indebted uh, to one man in America who made a great fortune in the mercantile business because of the example that he gave to us about giving. And his name was J.C. Penney. Many of us can remember reading the story, I remember it quite well, how that in 1936, in the Depression, he lost $40 million. And in the frustration and the despair over the imminent bankruptcy of the mercantile empire which he had sought to establish, he had to be taken to, to Battle Creek, Michigan to a sanitarium. And while he was there in that sanitarium, he said that there was a night in which he did not think that he would ever live to see the dawn of the next day. And he tried to compose his heart but no peace would come to his heart. And then in the morning, he heard a group of people, if you could imagine a place a good bit like the Assembly Inn across the lake, and a lobby and a group of people singing, he heard them singing the hymn, Be Not Dismayed, Whate'er Betide, God Will Take Care of You. And he said he realized suddenly that all that he had belonged to God, and that if he lost it, what difference did it make? It belonged to God. If God gave it back to him, he would be willing to use it more judiciously and wisely for his kingdom. And he said the words of the old hymn spoke to the needs of his heart very greatly that day, and that he yielded his life in a new dedication to him, and his funds as well went to his glory.
And so you see, it's not just the widow in her extreme poverty, but the multimillionaire with his sense of responsibility before God, each one seeking in his own heart to be clear before God that what they do, they do for his own glory. I would like for us to conclude our worship at this time by singing together the just a part of the hymn number 310. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Let us sing the, the first, second, and last stanzas of this hymn. The first, second, and fifth stanzas of number 310. Let us stand. <laughs> 